I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Crowdfunding, once thought of as little more than a way to raise money for small scientific projects, is increasingly being used to raise significant capital to fund startups. Pearlstein Lab, a San Francisco-based startup focused on finding new drugs to treat rare diseases, raised more than $2 million using crowdfunding. We spoke to Ethan Pearlstein, founder and CEO of Pearlstein Lab, about his company, the potential of crowdfunding, and the unusual role social media has played in his efforts to raise capital. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you, Danny. We've been looking at funding models this month and thought it would be a, a good time to check in with you to discuss Pearlstein Lab and the, the path you took to raise money. I, I think it might be good to begin with the work you're doing itself. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Pearlstein Lab. Can, can you describe what it is and the work you do? Sure. So we're focused on orphan or rare genetic diseases. Sometimes these are called monogenic diseases. Uh, sometimes they're called Mendelian diseases. And we want to do small molecule drug discovery in a targeted way or a personalized way for, for this, this entire class. And we think we can do this using model organisms. So that would be yeast, worms, flies, and zebrafish. And the idea is that you do screens with, with various drugs that are already out there and then see which ones respond to the disease in these model organisms? Well, actually, we want to try to find uh, novel chemical entities. Uh, we, we certainly are happy with repurposing opportunities, but we definitely want to go after novel chemical space. And yes, we want to model the disease in these organisms in a personalized way and then do these so-called phenotypic screens to find small molecules that can reverse the, the genetic defect at its, at its root. And what's the business model? If you find a promising drug, how far will you take that? So we want to take things to the IND. That's our, our finish line. And then we want to find clinical stage partners who will then carry carry these molecules or these these, these drug candidates further. And then we say IND, you mean right to the clinic? That's right. So we want to stop. Yeah, we want to start at that first uh, regulatory interface, and then we want to be able to go back uh, after that handoff to the next disease and repeat this this cycle of, of rapid personalized drug discovery uh, across across as many Mendelian diseases as we can model in these organisms. You know, one thing I thought that was interesting from from a legal point of view, you are what is known as a public benefit corporation. Can you, can you explain what that means, and, and did it have any impact on your ability to raise money? Yeah, so this is a, a concept in corporate law. It was introduced to me by, uh, by posting my co-founder Henry, posting my brother actually, who's a, who's a lawyer and legal entrepreneur. And this is a, a new class of, um, of, of corporate structure. Um, and then we are, we are a, a public Delaware corporation because that is the option in Delaware where we are incorporated. But many states now, I think the majority of, of the 50 states have actually passed some form of uh, benefit corporation law. Uh, and this just allows us to bake into the corporate DNA from the very outset. Um, a, a social uh, mission, in this case, uh, rare, rare disease patients, but also uh, potentially an environmental mission, in our case, being able to reduce the, the carbon footprint of drug discovery. So this is a popular movement. I think it's part of the, the broader, uh, under the broader umbrella of social entrepreneurship. And um, so we decided to structure it this way because we thought we really wanted to walk the walk when it comes to putting the, the, 
patient first. Um, so I'm not sure of many other, I'm not sure if there are any other biotech decors out there in the orphan disease space. Um, if not, we're happy to, to lead the target and hope others will, will fall in our, in our tracks. I think in terms of sort of the investor, um, you know, either excitement or skittishness, it, in a lot of ways, being a, a benefit corporation acts as a screen, uh, in terms of, you know, is an investor comfortable with this or not? If they're not comfortable with it, then, you know, you probably want to talk to another investor. So we didn't really have any trouble on our end. Um, convincing the investors that this was um, a, a good approach. Your decision to launch Prostein Lab came after your confrontation with what's been referred to as the postdocalypse, the the job market for scientists seeking academic positions. To what extent is this tied to federal funding levels for biomedical research, and, and do you see that driving others like yourself in, to becoming a, a new breed of scientist entrepreneurs? I hope so. I mean, I think I was part of this generation that, that came, came up through the system during the NIH doubling, which was a period between 98 and 2003 where the NIH budget goes from, annual budget goes from 15 billion to 30 billion. And I remember, you know, being a college student thinking, wow, I get to go to grad school and they pay me to go. Uh, there wasn't a very, you know, large stipend, I guess, but it was great, you know, if you're early 20 something. So I think I was part of a, a movement of, or, or a generation of very excited young scientists who are coming into biomedical research at a time of, of plenty, um, but then we're now in a period of, of sort of famine. Uh, so I think I'm not the only one who's experiencing problems, uh, not only, you know, in the job market, but even if you make it onto, into the, into academia as a professor, you know, the odds are stacked against you in terms of getting your, your first big grant for, you know, many, many, many years until you're early 40s on average. So I think the, the conditions are ripe for more uh, academics at all levels, at the, at the graduate level, at the postdoc level, at the professor level, and then certainly at the at the undergrad level as well, to consider um, you know going outside of a conventional university based lab to to pursue science. Well, let's talk about your use of crowdfunding. You've raised two million dollars for Prostein Lab, is that correct? Yeah, a little over that, but two point two five. You have a couple of key investors, but how much of that is attributable to crowdfunding? Was it all from crowdfunding, or was it just part of that? Well, I joke with people if your if your cap table has more than ten names on it, then you're crowdfunding, um, and that's that sort of we fit that definition. So uh, we we created a profile, for example, on AngelList, but you know, AngelList is not a uh, is, is one of the platforms for encouraging equity crowdfunding. But you don't actually close the deal on AngelList; you close the deal offline. So you know, we we posted a profile there, but I think in, in a lot of ways. You know, we raise the seed round the way a lot of um, entrepreneurs uh, you know, or teams raise the raise seed round, which is you, you get it bit by bit. You you know you you close investors sort of one one after the other. Um, but you know, for example, our, our investment spectrum ranges from the smallest investment size of five thousand dollars and the largest was four hundred thousand. Um, so there wasn't one single majority um, investor. So in that sense, it was more of a coalition, and again, that involves just going out there and kind of being the payment. But again, anyone who's raising money to some extent is doing this. This is just a function of fundraising, I think, in general. In terms of looking at investors, who, who are you able to access? Are, are these traditional angel investors you're connecting with through crowdfunding platforms, or are you reaching people concerned about specific diseases like the ones you're looking at? Yeah, I think the unifying theme across this spectrum of, of, of investors that we got was was some kind of either personal or business um, connection to, to the rare disease space. And I think that was one thing that we we experienced, or the, you know, the, the one lesson I, I learned was uh, it, it, to, to find investors in this in this orphan space, which is still very 
you know, talk about it as a bubble and then very, very exciting, it's still actually quite challenging um, because, again, the numbers are just really tiny. So the people who have any real stake, emotional business or otherwise, is just exceedingly small. So if, if I remember correctly, this wasn't your first crowdfunding effort. How does raising money to fund a company through the sale of equity differ from, say, funding for a specific scientific project? Yeah, I mean, I first got experience being a campaign manager, so to speak, for a, for an academic crowdfunding campaign. I raised $25,000 on a platform called Rocket Hub, and that was really about basic science. Um, I think the similarities are, are are simply that any kind of fundraising, in fact, whether it's online or offline, just involves a certain amount of dedication and time and, and targeted, you know, searches. And, and so I think there, there was a, there was kind of a common theme running across um, you know, both, you know, both, uh, ventures or, or both, uh, you know, engagements and, and, and crowdfunding, even though the size of, you know, one case, the average donation for the academic crowdfunding was, you know, somewhere around a hundred dollars, but, but, you know, the average investment size for uh, a company crowdfund was, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars. So it's just many different magnitudes, uh, different from scale, but there's still that fundamental, uh, commonality that when you're fundraising and, and pounding the pavement, um, and pitching, um, that really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what the size of, or the donation of the, the investment pitching is pitching. Well, I, I think it's worth noting that your use of social media, and in, in particular Twitter, has been essential to your fundraising efforts. In fact, I essentially met you through Twitter. Can, can you explain yeah. the role that's played and how entrepreneurs, particularly those seeking crowdfunding, should think about and use Twitter and other social media platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the sequence was, you know, I had been on Twitter since 2011, but I was generally using it for science purposes, uh, but that was real large. And, and then when I was lead, transitioning out of academia, I started to uh, identify these rare disease communities online. And I think that's really potentially the, the generalizable formula here is you go onto Twitter, you connect with these communities that are very passionate about something. And then if you're an entrepreneur and you offer a solution to a problem that everyone in that community is talking about, um, you know, you have opportunity to, to very quickly activate uh, a base of connections that can lead you to investment, lead you to employees, team members, lead you to collaborators, and so on. So I think uh, Twitter is definitely, was definitely the X factor for me, but I don't think that that's something that's unique to me. I think, um, you know, many, many people, uh, as a test, testament to the size of the Twitter network and the fact that we met there, and that's not a common thing that in, in my journey in biotech, a lot of people I met in real life, I met first almost as a, as a screen, pre-screen on Twitter. Um, and I just think that that's something that a lot of people are, are cluing into. So it's, it's not just me, but, but I hope other people um, you know, blaze, blaze their own path as well. Although it seems to be very much a part of the culture you're building at Pearlstein Lab. I noticed your staff list all have prominent links to each employee's Twitter account. And in fact, yeah. your, your company recently published a year in review that was largely built around employee tweets of key events. Do you yeah. require or encourage staff to be active on Twitter? And if so, do you have any rules or guidance on how they make use of it? Yeah, I, I definitely do encourage it. I think, you know, to some extent, every company operates a bit in stealth, uh, you know, for some period of time. So, you know, and, and obviously you don't want to be, you know, sharing minute to minute what's going on, but that's just terribly, you know, dreadfully boring. But I have encouraged the team to, to, to do it, try to lead by example, and I hope that we do it more, especially as, uh, you know, research results start to come in. Now, clearly, we are always considering 
the implications of tweeting about things in terms of disclosure uh, from an IP perspective. And, and so that that's a guideline I think everybody understands. We're not going to be tweeting the structures of things, and for example, until we um, you know have, have secured them uh, from a patent perspective. But I, I definitely um, encourage people to take an open science approach uh, to, to social media and especially to Twitter in that they should, you know, the team and, and everybody, whether it's at the bench or even you me doing things uh, on the business side, we should be trying to talk about this and share it with others. So how would you say crowdfunding has evolved in terms of what it could do and, and how seriously people can think of it as a mean of financing uh, an, an enterprise, particularly one seeking to develop treatments for rare disease? How should people look at how to leverage this as a financing tool, and what can they realistically expect to be able to do with it in, in terms of the type of capital they can raise? I mean, I think the sky is the limit, but I think it's going to go, you know, slowly. And I think that, that one big criticism about crowdfunding, you know, that I hear especially from the academic side, and this, this applies really generally to charitable crowdfunding, is that, well, the size of the, the crowdfunding campaigns don't compete with the size of grants. And until that ever happens, you know, a lot of academics just just won't take crowdfunding as seriously, and I, I respect that. I understand that, um, and I think I think it will eventually get to a point where crowdfunding can compete with grants. But I think it's going to be slow. Um, I, but and I don't want to make. I think I've learned. I've been chasing by the last few years about not getting too excited about how quickly things will progress because uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of headwind and a lot of cultural conservatism and just conservatism of habit uh, that prevent people from from trying. A crowd, what amounts to a crowdfunding experiment. Um, but I'm hopeful, especially in the rare disease community um, and in, in any community in general that's already very well organized and activated. Um, I think they, you know, crowdfunding is a great tool for, for, for those kinds of communities. Well, it, it strikes me that one of the benefits here is it's really imposed a, a discipline and a capital efficiency on you that, you know, many venture enterprises might not have otherwise. I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I think the average, the, the statistic I hear is that the average, you know, biotech theory day is $15 million, $20 million. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's like 10x what we've, we've done. And, and do we really need all that, all that money up front? When a lot of ways, it, it, these are just ideas and discoveries uh, that are being translated, you know, at the earliest stages. Do we really need all that money up front? And I think we've been able to benefit from things like incubation at, at a biotech incubator, QB3. Uh, and 953 is our, is our incubator. We've, we've benefited from, from marketplaces like Science Exchange where we've been able to get competitively bid, uh, you know, you know price projects on, on, on very customized kinds of experiments that, that were done even before our team was assembled. So we've been able to be very capital efficient. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Ethan Perlstein, founder and CEO of Perlstein Lab. Ethan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed from raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.